0: Amen. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came, that he died, that he was raised from the grave, and that if you believe in him, Your sins may be forgiven. If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Galatians. Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And we will look at chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 this morning. And we're going to look at these verses under the heading, The Peril of False Gospels. The Peril of False Gospels. And that's why it's important that we have just read the true gospel that Jesus died, that he was raised, and that if we believe in him, we may have the forgiveness of our sins. Last time we looked at Paul's introduction, he began this letter to these churches by announcing his authority, announcing his apostleship, that he was called and set apart by the Lord God himself, by Jesus coming and appearing to him and setting him apart and sending him out as a messenger of the gospel. But Paul, in his introduction, didn't stop there. He also reminded the Galatians of their common salvation. He said, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. So Paul set up his authority And he set up the common salvation that he shares with the Galatian people. And oftentimes, Paul in his letters would give this type of introduction, and then he would follow it up with a paragraph of commendation, a paragraph encouraging the church for their their lives as saints. For instance, to the Ephesians, he praised their faith in Christ and their love for one another. Paul began his letter to the Philippians saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Even to the Corinthians, those people who lived debauched lives, who were called out of great sin, who struggled with understanding the scriptures, who struggled with with letting their sin remain with them, Even to that church, Paul began with with an encouragement. He thanked them for their prayers, and he encouraged them to continue walking with Christ. But this is not the case with the Galatians. Paul did not give a commendation to these people. He gives his introductory comments in verses 1 through 5. And then due to the seriousness of the issues, the fact that the gospel was being undermined by the Judaizers, Paul launches right in to his central point. And so, without further delay, let's read that central point. Let's read that central purpose in verses 6 through 9. And then we will ask the Lord to bless our time together this morning and then consider this idea of the peril and the danger of false gospels. So, this is the word of the living God, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Paul writes, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we read your word, it is striking the seriousness of the issue with which Paul is dealing here the issue of the purity of the gospel of the lord jesus christ lord for it surely is perilous to believe anything but the pure and true gospel for lord if our hope is in anything but the the hope that comes in christ through faith in him we are condemned we are as paul wrote here to be accursed how much more so are those who proclaim a false gospel to be accursed. So Lord, as we consider the seriousness of this matter, I pray, God, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to understand the text before us. Lord, help us to to see what was going on with these churches in Galatia, to understand the dangers of bad theology, understand the dangers of of a watered-down or trumped-up gospel that is not in line with what has been taught and proclaimed in your word. Help us to see the, the gravity of that, and then to become guardians and proclaimers of the truth. Lord, help us to have a great desire and a great boldness to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. Your word, O Lord, is crystal clear as to what is required for salvation. For it is by grace, through faith, not of our works, but only through Christ for the sake of your glory. God, may we guard that truth. Would your spirit open our minds and humble our hearts to see and understand what is before us today. Lord, as as we finish, would you put strength in every stride so that we may go out and run the race of a servant good and faithful while boldly proclaiming that Jesus saves. Lord, it is only by your grace and through your spirit that any of this can be accomplished. Our words and our strength will fail Utterly. So Lord, do your work in us. And not to us, not to us, O Lord, be the glory, but to your name be all praise and glory and honor. Pray in Christ's name, amen. So as we see in this text, false gospels will condemn both the hearer and the proclaimer. Those who preach false gospels are accursed, and those who believe false gospels are called by Paul those who desert the God who called them by grace in Christ. That is a serious matter. But we who are in Christ can take heart because we know that we will not fall away. We who are in Christ know that it is Christ who keeps us. It is Christ who guards us and it is in and through Christ that we are secure. But we also know that we must stand firm. We must not waver on the truth of God's word. We must stand firm over the course of our entire lives to prove that we are in the faith. We must stand firm to prove that we have not believed a different gospel. We must stand firm to prove that we have not believed in vain. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, to that church we've already talked about, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, he said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if, Paul says, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain hold fast to the word that was preached believe in such a way that your life is transformed in a second letter to the corinthians paul writes in second corinthians 13 test yourselves to see if you are in the faith examine yourselves Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Test yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Because if you are in the faith, Jesus Christ is in you and your life will show that you are in the faith. You will stand firm on the truth and in the truth because it is God who is at work in you. So, believers in Christ can have a great confidence in our salvation. We have this great confidence because we are kept by God. But even knowing that we are kept by God and we do not earn our salvation, we must examine ourselves. We must strive to stand firm, to remain, to, to s- ensure that our lives give evidence of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to prove that we are indeed in the faith. So with this in mind, to summarize the text today, we want to see the ideas that false gospels are prevalent. They're prevalent 2,000 years ago, and they are prevalent today. False teachers are condemned. And we see that false believers will fall away. That's a scary thing. That that is a, a negative thing. That should cause us to fear and tremble. False gospels are prevalent. False teachers are condemned. False believers will fall away. But dear friends, Jesus saves. There is life and hope and assurance and security because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let's dive in. Point number one, verses six and seven, we see that false believers will fall away. Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now to be clear, we have to make a distinction here. Paul has identified the Galatians as those who are in Christ. The Galatians are those who have received the Holy Spirit, who have savingly confessed Jesus as Lord. And so what Paul is really doing here is giving them a warning. He is warning them that they must continue in the faith to ensure that they don't fall away. Scripture is clear that those who are in Christ will reign. You remember Jesus' words in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So from the outset, let's take heart, friends, to know that no one is able to snatch us from Christ. No one is able to pluck us from the father's hand. Surely, There's the danger of sin in our lives. There are periods of struggling with sin and even wrong belief and untrue doctrine. But those who are in Christ will remain in Christ. Those who are in Christ will turn from those things and give evidence of their salvation. And they'll do that because they were won by Christ, because they are kept by Christ. He chose us. He saved us. We are His people. We are saved by His work for His glory. So this talk of falling away is exclusively directed at those who are not in Christ. However, don't let that give you a false sense of assurance. We, we know from Scripture that there are those who claim to be in Christ whose lives do not, do not match up with that claim. We think about Matthew chapter 7, well-known words of Jesus. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles. And Jesus then says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we have the assurance that we who are in Christ will remain in Christ. But we also have this terrifying teaching of Jesus that there are those who on that day, last day will say, Jesus, did we not do all of this for you? And Jesus will say, depart from me because I never knew you. You were never in Christ. So we have to hold this balance. There, there's a, a healthy and a good tension that we see from those things. We, we must not give ourselves unnecessary fear of falling away, but we must not also give ourselves an unbiblical assurance that we were in Christ. Paul told the Philippians of this in Philippians chapter 2. He said, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To work out our salvation... According to Paul, according to Holy Scripture, to work out our salvation is to walk in humble obedience. Paul references how they obeyed in his presence and in his absence. Then he says, now do that and work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, with great humility. We must strive after obedience. But friends, as we strive, we know that it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our obedience is but a response of devotion because of the glorious saving work of Jesus Christ. So with that, let's consider then what Paul says here in verses 6 and 7. The idea that false believers will fall away. He begins by saying, I am amazed. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. This is not a light matter. This is not a trivial thing to Paul. It is not a trivial matter to the Lord who directed Paul to write these words. For what we believe, dear friends, hear this, is of eternal significance. How you believe and apply the gospel of Christ is is eternally judging where you will spend eternity. If you rightly believe and submit your life to Jesus, you will spend eternity in heaven worshiping the Lord in purity, perfection, and holiness and righteousness. But if you don't, if you wrongly believe or wrongly apply the gospel, you will be condemned. You will perish. You will know the torment of the lake of fire. We live in an age where many will try to convince you that all this biblical stuff that you are holding to is not important. Even professing Christians will reproach you and rebuke you for taking such a hard stand upon the truth, taking such a hard stand on the gospel. So many today want to minimize doctrine, they want to minimize truth, and live by emotions. They want to minimize doctrine and maximize the emotional, uh, the emotion, what the emotions attribute and contribute to your faith and to your life. But Paul is amazed, he says, that the Galatians are so quickly deserting the Lord. Deserting the grace that was given to them in Christ. He is amazed because he knows that even small deviations from the truth will often lead to shipwreck of faith. One chink in the armor of your doctrine can lead to the heresy that will condemn you to hell for all eternity. One brick in a building that is out of, out of square, out of center, can lead to an entire wall being out of square. One small deviation from the holy truth of God's entire word, can lead to the shipwreck of faith. Friends, I hope you hear that and understand that. What you believe, all of what you believe, is greatly, greatly significant. The object of Paul's amazement, he he is amazed here. He says he's amazed because... These Galatians are deserting the God who called them by the grace of Christ. He is amazed that they are deserting God. And again, this is where the world or worldly people who name the name of Christ will often raise a flag and question such strict language. We're not deserting God. We're not deserting the authority of Scripture. We just want to bring this thing in. We just want to use this philosophy as a helpful, analytical tool to how we live life. No, friends, that's not it. That is not the command of the Lord. We must hold to all the truth, or we are in danger of deserting him who called us unto the grace of Christ. So what is Paul saying here? This Greek term deserting is used several times in the New Testament, and there's at least one use that is, in a very similar context to what we're dealing with here. That's in the the short letter of Jude. That short letter in in verse 4 of Jude, he's writing believers about false teachers. In Jude 4, he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So where's the word desert? It's the word turn. Those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness, into liberty to sin. Jude says these false false teachers take God's grace and transform it into something that it is not. They they transform, that's what this term speaks to, transforming a fixed thing and making it something completely different. God's grace, for instance, is given to set us free from the power and the condemnation of sin and law. God's grace is not given to give us license to sin. False teachers change the grace of God into being something completely different than it is. They turn the grace of God into liberty to sin. They say, we are in grace. God's grace is sufficient. He will forgive me, so I'm going to go off and do whatever I please. Scripture is clear. That is not the purpose of God's grace. And to twist and pervert God's grace like that is the same thing that Paul is saying that the Galatians are doing. They're deserting the God who called them to grace in Christ. The next logical question then is to ask, what are the Galatians turning to? Paul says that they're turning from grace. They're turning from this fixed and set thing that has changed and transformed their lives. So what are they turning to? You don't turn from one firm belief in something to just not believe anything. That's not how the human mind works. Paul says that they are turning, that they have deserted him who called you by the grace of Christ and turning then for a different gospel, which Paul says is really not another. What does Paul mean when he says a different gospel? Is is he speaking of a gospel where you have a different cultural context than me, so your application of the gospel is different? Or is he saying, well, you're turning from God's grace and you have some different convictions about, about how salvation works out and You're just going to go in and live out those convictions while you're in Christ, and I'll live out these different convictions while I'm in Christ. No. Very simply and very clearly stated, a different gospel. Paul says this is a different gospel, and that speaks of a gospel of another kind or of a different form. This, This word is used otherwise. This idea of a different something, a different gospel is used by Jesus himself. Matthew 6, verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either love one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. That word other is the exact same Greek word where we get the idea of a different gospel. You love one, you hate the other. You're devoted to one, and you despise the other. Jesus says that there are two masters and you will be diametrically opposed in your loyalty to them. You will be loyal to one and you will hate the other. And there are two gospels. One of them is true and biblical. One of them is another gospel. That is not true. Paul used this term in um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He told Timothy to remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange things doctrines. Remain on at Ephesus so you may teach people not to teach different doctrines. That is the combining of the word different and doctrine. So so the idea of something is, is of something that is just not true. It is not right. It does not accord with the truth. Paul is saying don't fall away for a different gospel. A gospel that is of a different form and a different kind because there is no other gospel. If you fall for a different gospel, you're falling for something that is not really another. For there is one gospel. And it is the gospel given to us on the pages of Scripture. And this gospel, Paul says, is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that has the power to save. And if you believe a different gospel or if you proclaim a different gospel, you are preaching something that is utterly powerless. So friends, I hope that we we see from this that those who fall into false doctrine are, are likely those who were believing in a false gospel from the beginning. Because God holds us. God keeps us. God pulls us back in. We may scurry off and then the Lord draws us back in because his spirit lives within us. So to hold to another gospel means that you either did not believe the right gospel or you did not really believe the gospel at first so often. Our charge is, as Paul told Titus, we must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching of, so that we will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Again, this is of eternal significance. We must not waver. We must not move. We must not doubt. But rather, we must stand firm and hold fast to the faithful word of Scripture. You notice what Paul instructs Titus there. He says, uh, he's speaking of elders, but this, this applies to all of us in certain contexts. He says he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Those are two actions, and we're called to participate in both of those. We are called to exhort with the truth, to exhort one another lovingly, patiently, and graciously with and in sound doctrine. But it doesn't stop there. We must also refute those who contradict. Now, you can kind of tie those together because how are you going to refute someone who who contradicts sound doctrine? You're going to exhort them in sound doctrine. To, To contradict error is to proclaim the truth. If you find yourself always contradicting error but never proclaiming the truth, you're missing the point. Contradict what is false by proclaiming what God on His authority says is true. Do that by proclaiming God's word. The truth has power. So we see that false believers will fall away. And those false believers often fall away because they have heard a false gospel. The next heading I want to consider this morning is that false gospels are prevalent. False gospels are widespread, and we really see this throughout all of these verses. Consider the fact that the Galatians were so quickly deserting the truth of the gospel. How does that happen? They were radically transformed, but then they so quickly desert the gospel. That must be because a false gospel was right there ready to come in right after Paul left. Probably even while Paul was still there in the region, there were Judaizers coming in preaching heresy. This is a work of Satan. Satan would always have all believers, both new and old, mature and immature believers, to, to be attacked with false gospels, to be attacked with false doctrines, because Satan desires to shipwreck our faith. Satan hopes to ruin and wreck our walk with the Lord. He hopes to ruin and wreck our testimony and our proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Our age is not much different than Paul's time. False teachers often often then and certainly often today are the ones with the biggest platforms, the most prominence, the ones with the most money, the most resources. Why? Because they tickle ears. They, they, They preach Some false, phony, watered-down gospel that makes people feel good. And in doing that, they accumulate to themselves wealth, and power, and influence because they have a large following. We witness this, especially, I think, in the preachers of the prosperity gospel. The the practitioners of black magic in Paul's day were no different. They, They would go around healing people and practicing their magic and just accumulate to themselves a great following, a massive wealth, And then they had all the power. They had all the influence. We have to understand that a large following does not always indicate biblical faithfulness. Now, a large following doesn't indicate unfaithfulness to the truth either. But a large following does not always prove that someone is faithful to the Scripture we also see a hint, I think, of the widespread nature of this false teaching in verse 9. Paul says, as we have said before, so I say again now. If anybody's preaching a gospel contrary to what was preached to you, he's to be accursed. Paul had already addressed this issue with the Galatians. Now, there, there's some, but most most believe, and the Greek speaks to this being Paul referencing something that happened beforehand. There are some who would say that he's referencing back to verse 8, but the Greek and the Greek language doesn't really allow for that. When he says that we have said before, that's a, a fairly common thing for Paul to say. And when he says it, he's speaking to to a previous encounter. He's not speaking of the verse that he has just written. So he says, "I've said this before to you. I've said this before to you because false gospels are prevalent. Even when I was in in Galatia, just passing through on this first missionary journey." I knew that false teachers were coming up. They were right on Paul's heels, likely. And so he had told them, when they come in and preach to you a gospel contrary to what I preached, they are accursed. Don't believe them. Don't fall into their heresy. Don't fall into their traps. Again, is this not the same in our day? Many come to church with, with various forms of false teaching. They, they come into religious circles and try to mingle their error, their law, their works, their reparations into the gospel of Christ. And just as prevalent and dangerous uh, are, are those who come in and try to mix in the, the idea of liberty to sin, the falsehood of licentiousness. Th- those are two sides of the same coin because they both pervert the gospel They both pervert the gospel by mingling truth with error. And that is so common in our day. We have to look at what Scripture says, and that is that salvation is by grace, through faith, and in Christ alone. So with the prevalent nature of this false teaching, let's return to the end of verse 7. In verse 7, we see some of the specifics of these wicked people, these false teachers and think we can help prepare ourselves to stand and to fight against them. Paul says, only there are some who are disturbing you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Essentially, this tells us the method and the means of false teachers. They, they seek to disturb the followers of Christ by distorting the gospel of Christ. Firstly, this idea of disturbing. They seek to disturb you, those who are in Christ. It speaks of troubling or agitating something or someone. It speaks of causing distress, anxiety, or fear in the mind and heart of someone who was formerly at peace. Simply stated, this is the method of false teachers to create doubts in the minds of believers. So we can draw a real clear line here between how false teachers create doubt, but how the truth does not do that. God's truth disrupts false peace, false peace. It disrupts false peace in specific ways and to specific ends. You are called to forsake one sin and to pursue this opposite thing, this good, holy, right thing. False teachers only work to cause doubt. And this is the oldest trick in the book. Think back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember what Satan said there to Eve? Has God said to you, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Has God really said that you can't? Do you just remember it wrong? Did did he really say something else? You can imagine then Satan's craftiness through these false teachers in Galatia. Paul really say that you're justified by faith alone apart from works of the law what about Abraham what about Moses what about the the ten commandments did God change would would he not require you to keep his law when he required those in the old testament to keep his law and we know that God does not change Jesus came not to abolish the law but to fulfill the law and fulfill the law he did He fulfilled the law so that we would not be condemned by the law. But that is exactly how the craftiness of Satan works through false teachers. They mingle that that falsehood with these great truths. Calvin describes this method of false teaching by saying that that they do nothing else but cause a mass of confusion and destruction. When there's constant confusion, constant lack of clarity, assuredly Satan is in the midst of that confusion. Our God works in clarity, in order. Our God does not work in nuance or in ambiguity or in confusion. He is God of clarity. That is why we have the truth. James 3.16 says that earthly demonic wisdom is disorderly, chaotic, and evil that is a mark of falsehood a mark of false teachers is that there's always ambiguity every statement is couched with nuance because they don't say what they mean they don't mean what they say dear friends speak the truth speak it clearly speak it boldly verse 7 also shows the means of these false teachers we've kind of touched on this already they seek to disturb believers because they want to distort the gospel of Christ. They want to pervert and change the truth. For a changed gospel is a powerless gospel. A changed gospel is a gospel that will not save. To distort means to change completely, or to change around. and that is a gospel that is what a gospel that relies on any human working is is a completely changed gospel. Paul does talk later in this epistle, and I said this last week and will remind you throughout, that we get to this idea that we are not saved to continue and to remain in our sin. We're saved to be clothed in Christ, to walk in the Spirit, to display the fruit of the Spirit. But he makes crystal clear that we are saved. We are justified by faith alone. There are no ifs, there are no ands, there are no buts, and there's no nuance to this. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man may boast. So as we think about the perils and the prevalence of false gospels, we must stand firmly on all truth. We must stand firmly on the Bible, and we must know then what the Bible says about saving faith. And we must reject those who participate in the spread of falsehood. That's not a popular statement today, but dear friend, you must reject and refute those who participate in the spread of falsehood. Because if we don't, if God's people don't stand up, evil men are going to continue and proceed from bad to worse. That is a promise of Scripture for sure. But our calling, our duty is to refute and to contradict falsehood. So false believers will fall away, and false gospels are prevalent. The final thing that Paul mentions in this section is that false teachers are condemned. False teachers are condemned. Verse 8 and verse 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed okay, he is to be accursed. That was not enough for Paul. That was not enough for the Holy Spirit. He continues on. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. So there's a couple things to consider. Firstly, we ask the question, what was the gospel that Paul preached to them previously? Mike read it. Acts 13, that was Paul's first missionary journey. That was before he went to Galatia, but surely he preached the same gospel. You know, he talked about the, the death and the resurrection of Christ, and then Acts 13, 38 and 39, Paul said there, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, freed from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses." What was Paul's gospel? That if you believe in Christ, you are freed from the condemnation of the law. You're freed from that which the law of Moses could not free you. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish. Jesus fulfilled the law because no sinner could ever fulfill the law. We could never keep the law perfectly. Jesus fulfilled the law that we might be freely justified from the penalty of the law by his grace. That's what Paul says in Romans three twenty-four. And we can go on and on about this relationship between Christ and grace and the law. And we'll do so as we go through this letter. But for today, we keep moving forward. Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to a different gospel, he is to be accursed. And we know that no angel in heaven is going to preach a false gospel. Satan tried to usurp the power of God and was cast out of heaven forever. No angel of the Lord, no angel in heaven will preach a false gospel. Paul is strengthening his declaration that the gospel he previously preached was the true and whole gospel. So let's consider this curse. Okay? This is the part where, where people are going to struggle with, with what Scripture says here. What does it mean to be accursed? It's the Greek word, anathema. He he who preaches a different gospel is to be anathematized. He is to be damned. He is to be condemned. That is the outworking of a false gospel. You might think, surely Paul is not saying that those who preach a false gospel are going straight to hell. Apart from Christ, they absolutely are. In Romans 9 verse 3 Paul was speaking of his love for the Jewish people. He said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. I wish that I were accursed. Then he explains that separated from Christ for the sake of the Jews so that the Jews might believe. To be accursed has exactly one meaning in this context. To be accursed means to be cut off, and to be separated from Christ. And that is what awaits all who preach and all who hold to a false gospel. Now, let's listen to Matthew Henry because he's going to help us to not go running out and beating people over the head with anathemas. Henry says, This will not justify our thundering out anathemas against those who differ from us in minor things. It is only against those who forge a new gospel only for those who over, overturn the foundation of the covenant of grace by setting up the works of the law in the place of Christ's righteousness and corrupting Christianity. So those who are anathematized are those, Henry says, who forge a new gospel, who create a new gospel by mingling in that which does not belong with the gospel, with the truth. MacArthur said about the same topic. He said, false systems... False religions are attractive because they emotionally appeal to love, brotherhood, unity, and harmony. MacArthur continued, False teachers are popular because they seem to be warm and pleasant, and they claim to have a great love for God and for others. No matter the unity, no matter the harmony of the message, and no matter the winsomeness of or the love with which the proclaimers speak, if they speak that which is not true, they are to be accursed. They are to be condemned. And that's no excuse to go out and be mean and hateful and to speak the truth without love. But it is not the love with which you speak that proves the truth of your message. It's your message being compared to the word of God. No matter the sacrifice or the sincerity with which one holds a belief, if they hold to a false gospel, even sincerely, even sacrificially, the same fate awaits. Condemnation. Anathema. And that's a hard truth. It's a hard thing to understand because there are so many. You think about these third world countries and places like Africa where the prosperity gospel is so prevalent, these people give everything they have to prosperity preachers, and then they're given a false gospel. They're given something that will send their souls to hell faster than had they never heard anything before. Not because they're any more condemned, because now they have something false to hold to. They have a false hope. And those who preach that gospel, the Lord will not deal kindly with. God is merciful. He is loving. He is patient. He is good and kind and faithful. God is holy. God has wrath reserved in heaven to pour out upon those who prey on unsuspecting souls with false gospels. They're to be accursed. We must separate as soon as we see falsehood. We confront it, but we must separate. So I hope you see here the serious nature of the gospel. And the serious nature of false believers and false teachers. And the eternal end of those who are entangled in false gospels. This is a serious matter. It is one of eternal significance. So seeing all that seriousness, let, let's just take a couple minutes and end with this message of great hope. There is hope even in this text. It's so serious, but we see a glimmer of hope. Verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Him who called you by the grace of Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. That God has called us by the grace of Christ. That he's called us to forsake our sin, to believe And Jesus, who went to the cross and bore the punishment of your sins, to believe and to be transformed. So we consider the seriousness of false gospels. We must remember that there is but one gospel. And that gospel is that Jesus is the author and perfecter of all faith and that he laid down his life for you and for me. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, says that we must lay aside every encumbrance, Lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the, the great goal of the believer, that we fix Our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look not at the temporal and passing things of this world, but we look at our Savior savior who earned and who guards our salvation. False believers will fall away, but Jesus saves. Jesus keeps False gospels indeed are prevalent, but God's truth is triumphant. False teachers are condemned, but Jesus was made a curse for you and for me. Jesus was condemned on our behalf so that he would take our condemnation so that he could give us his righteousness. Though our outer man might be wasting away, the inner man is strengthened and renewed day to day because we hope in a king and of a kingdom that is not of this world. The battle over truth will rage. The battle over truth, friends, is raging. Evil men will and are distorting the gospel and disturbing, upsetting, causing anxiety and fear in believers. But the war has already been won. The grace of Christ will fill you for each and every battle. So let us see the warnings here from Paul. To understand that false believers will fall away. That false gospels are prevalent. That false teachers are condemned. But may we also remember that Jesus saves. May we look to him. May we be found In him. Paul said, we'll close with this, Paul, in Philippians chapter three, verses seven through eleven. Said, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. May we know him. May we join him in his suffering. May we, as Paul said, count everything as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And may we be found in him, clothed and covered in his righteousness. For we are washed in the blood of Christ. Let's close in prayer.